everyone. Get off on my damn radio. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Um, I uh, <laughs> I was like down to three minutes before the show started and realized I didn't have a damn drink, so I had to go get a damn drink. And then I was getting some um, uh, Splenda from my tea, and I almost put the Splenda in the free the fridge. Um, so. There's no telling what I will find in my fridge when I go back down there. I, I don't even know what happened. Um, I did get a banana, though, while I was down there. So I will be munching during this show on a banana. It's not a big banana, so it won't be the whole show, <sighs> unfortunately. Anyways, um, tonight we're going to do a writer's table because I couldn't think of anything else, and Jilly couldn't either, and um, fuck it. So uh, there, I already earned my rating. So there well, we, go. we don't want me going on a we don't want me going on another point of view rant. Nobody needs that. <laughs> well, no, no, wait. Everybody actually needs that. I mean, <laughs> even I have my moments. I was reading some of my old work, and um, it's it's terrible how how fandom things can sneak into your work, and you don't even know it. Um, I got. I talk about that that one-sided conversation that I've got that came, that's just out of nowhere in my narrative because I head hopped, and it's just it's it's heinous. Um, and I also found scissoring. I found the scissoring Aww. in in ties that bind. I found scissoring. Just just one just just one where John scissored his fingers into um, an orifice. And I went, oh, my God, there's scissors. Oh, my God. I, was, I almost went to my site to edit it. That's how freaked out I was when I saw it. So it is amazing um, things that you know are terrible and wrong, how they end up in your writing um, just through osmosis. Yeah. It's and you, don't you read them so it. much. Yeah, you read it so much, it just starts to come out. I mean, you are influenced by what you read, whether you want to be or not. Right. Which is why if you start seeing a trope become pervasive in a fandom or even a cliche or whatever, that it can start to seem like a good idea. <laughs> it's like, and it, and it may, it may need a little bit more critical thought than that. <laughs> it may need a lot of critical thought. I, um, I'm having a hard time with my nano. Um, not some, and I did have some problems where I, I didn't anticipate, um, um, how I would feel about the thrust of my plot um but more and i this is the second time i've encountered this i i think my relationship with stargate stargate has changed so much that i'm not sure um i'm not saying i'm going to leave the stargate fandom because it will always be my my home because it's where i started uh, but I feel like my relationship with the Stargate fandom has changed so much with the characters that riding on Rough Trade and Stargate is very stressful. Um, my work with Ties at Bind was so intimate. I tried last year with um, Synthetic, and it fell to pieces. I, and I really was in love with the idea of Synthetic. I still am. Um, I had problems with Revenant. Um, and I'm also having problems with Patient Zero. And the only thing they all have in common beyond being on RT is that they're all Stargate. 
I think they have one other thing in common. What is it? They're all significant AUs. I mean, significant. Yeah. 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 And it, it may be that the major AU of Stargate is what isn't working for you, that you need more time to, like, process the world building and how you may, you may need more, more creative, like, musing time or something to figure out how all the pieces come together in a way that satisfies you. Whereas when you're working in something a little bit closer to canon, you know exactly how all those pieces fall together. Yeah, they all do have heavy emotional content. And maybe that's just not something that I can do in the RT environment. Well, you've done it with Harry Potter. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just... I don't know. I'm struggling. I'm put off. I don't know what it is. But it also just be because I did come off a really big writing experience shortly before RT started. Um, and um, I put a lot into my Quantum Bang. Um, and I've got a big edit or a second draft ahead of me and, and then beta. And um, I think maybe I should have just took it taking a break but it's kind of hard to say I'm gonna take a break running my own challenge site I'm like okay here you guys here's your challenge um I'll see you next month (laughs) yeah that's so awkward to not participate in your own challenge it's really awkward so um but yeah I'm just gonna you know but also Recently, um, I was talking to Julie about Rough Trade and how it never seems to end. And um, because of the extended posting that I allow, and after I said that there would be no posting after the 5th, I was like, yeah, okay, that 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 helps. It, it doesn't feel like there's no end in sight. It did. I, I didn't even think that it was an issue for me. Um until you announced it, and I went, oh, thank God. I just had this kind of, this internal moment of, phew. Um, and I, didn't, <laughs> I, had, I had no idea that had been stressing me out. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if I can totally blame Stargate for the problem. Um or if it is the complete AU, although I don't think Revenant is a, as complete an AU as synthetic um, turned out to be. Um, like I said, I really do feel like I shoehorned Stargate characters into what really is an original idea, and I shouldn't have um, because they weren't even they just had the names. That it it was too different. It was that was just not. Um, no, it was a bad idea. I mean, it's a great idea. It was a bad idea to put that in fandom. It was just not, um, no, the execution was terrible. Um, but being able to um, see that and admit that is is personal growth, right? So um, I'm not saying the writing is terrible because I know I'm not a terrible writer, but the execution was off and awkward. And so, um, you know, you have to be mature enough as a writer to to recognize that even in your own work. And sometimes it takes distance, which is like 
earlier we were talking about how Revenant is actually not the right format. It should not be an episode series. And this is something that Julie saw apparently early on <laughs> and chose not to share with me, <laughs> which is fine. Well, that's fine. Because I think that a lot of times you have to reach that kind of conclusion yourself. Yeah. I mean, if somebody else, and sometimes until you get to that point in, in your in, in your own path to realization about your work, a, a billion people could share that to you and with you, and it, it doesn't mean that it's going to resonate with you in any meaningful way. And that's one of the things I've noticed is that um, um, I, sometimes like people will give me advice about something or all, what in a lot of different ways. There's kind of like a gut instinct about things. And there's two different types of kind of instant reactions. One is like a defensiveness. And sometimes a kind of a defensiveness or whatever can be, I really don't like that, or it could be that there's some truth here I don't want to deal with, and that takes some time to sort out. And the other is just, you know, it's like that just doesn't gel in my creative brain. Um, people sometimes can give me perfectly reasonable suggestions to a problem I'm having, and it will just be for me, it's just like, no, no, because it just doesn't, it just doesn't click. It just doesn't click, and you have to, and now, I mean, Sometimes it's that it doesn't click within the framework that I have going on in my head. And sometimes I like come back to that and go, wow, that thing that didn't click before, it clicks now. I don't get it. And it's because the rest of the framework changed. And so now it works. So I think it's just important to listen to that voice that you have, that creative impulse. I think that people try to ignore it. Um, I think a lot of times I see people say things like, I don't know what's wrong with my story. I'm stalled out. I don't know why I'm not happy with it. And well, they're having a creative impulse about their own work. And it's telling them something that they don't quite know how to decipher yet. And sometimes that takes, we've talked about this before, sometimes that takes mm-hmm. time. It takes time and getting away from it to see what the issue is. And that's difficult in, in, in a challenge environment because it's not like you can just put the story down and go work on something else. You know, this is the story you're locked into for that challenge. Um, but you could stop working on the challenge and go work on something else and come back to it in a little in a few days and see if you've been able to sort it out or talk to somebody else. But there, there is an impulse there that um, I think that it's trying to tell you something. And, and when you're really close to it, it's really you, you have the worst perspective, other than something's wrong. I and mean, I think that that it, and it's a it's a void. That's an impulse that's worth listening to. And also, um, I have to caution people um, to not when you're having a difficult experience writing something. Um, there are two inclinations. There's one you push through, um, and one is you just fuck it. And um, and sometimes pushing through is the right choice to make, and sometimes it is very detrimental to you, both as um, a writer and as a person. So you need to learn, and this is something you learn through experience, unfortunately, to when to pick your battles. Yeah. And always, always, if something is fucking with you emotionally, let it go. 
there is enough stress and terribleness going on in the world around you that you don't need to manufacture it in your own brain and write it down as well. So if something is fucking you up that you're writing, put it aside. Because it is not worth it to torture yourself. Um, and for me, my creative process is supposed to be a a stress outlet, um, a way of um, relaxing my brain and, and getting... Because um, my mind tends to race. Boom, 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 boom. And one of the ways that I, I manage that is to write. Um, but if my writing isn't calming me down, then it's a problem. Yeah, if it's becoming the thing you dread doing every day, but you've got... Because somebody who's got a lot of discipline around writing can continue to write when they dread it. Um, some, people, some people won't go there, but if you already have a good writing discipline you might keep writing even when you're dreading it, and then you can start to hate the whole thing. And the only so, reason you do that is if you already got paid. I'm just saying. Yeah, that's really the only reason to do it. Um, it's. I just I just don't think that even, even in a challenged environment, I don't care how disappointed people are going to be, I just don't think it's worth making yourself miserable. Um and a lot of times there is, like, something that you you know isn't working. And it's – because you're in the thick of it, you, it's hard to articulate what it is, what that is. It's hard to put language around what isn't working. It's just you're not happy or uncomfortable or, you know. I mean, my, one of my big stumbling blocks is challenge, though I knew exactly what it was. And it was a case of I just need to get through this scene and, and move on. Um but sometimes I hit stumbling blocks and I go, I don't understand what the problem is here. I don't understand why I'm so disquieted or why I'm, this isn't gelling for me or where I screwed up. Or, um, so, yeah, it's, it can be very difficult when you're in challenge to figure out what to do with that kind of thing. Um, and Ellie asked a question that's sort of on point here, which is that how often – do you know that you have an issue in a story and decide to stop in a challenge versus decide to power through and get it out and just deal with the issues later in a rewrite? Um, there's a, I've kind of been in all of those boats where I've powered through. In one case I powered through, I, I identified, I knew I had a problem, and I kind of knew what the problem was, but I didn't have the perspective to fix it. I found a Band-Aid for the problem, I kept going, despite the fact that I was stuck on this one thing, and I just kept going, and and that was a fine solution. The continuing to keep moving, going with the story as well, as it was, was a fine solution, um, because it didn't stop me from writing. It wasn't like that problem was was keeping the story from moving forward. So I did keep going. The story was emergence. It was my first rough trade, and um, if I had had a little bit more perspective. If I was a little bit more settled and as my and settled as a writer at that time, I would have done a major rewrite on that problem. Instead, I chose to keep the band-aid solution that I had found during the writing process in place because, in a way, it was a lot about reader pressure 
to be honest. I mean, this was that was about the I think the last time I really caved to reader pressure was on that story, and I worried about changing it over what people had seen because it would have been a significant piece of storyline removed. Um, and I was getting honestly harassed about what posting it, posting it. Um, sometimes 10, 20 requests a day. You know, yeah. when posting, what happened to the story? It was, it was, there was a point at which um, I was almost, I, I was almost in tears over the amount of pressure I felt to get that story up. And, Partially because when I went into doing my final edits, I pulled the rough draft off down, and that was my mistake. Was I had my first mistake was when I when rough trade was over, I felt guilty, this kind of inappropriate guilt that people would lose access to the story that was what there was of the story, which is about 180,000 words, and I posted the rough draft on. My, on what was my blog site at the time? I didn't have my website then. But when I, I just made a terrible edit, face. <laughs> yeah, it was awful. It was awful. So I put kept my rough draft up, and I kept working on the rest of the story. Um, and then when I went in to go work on my final edit, which I knew it was going to take a little while, but I also needed to move it from my. I needed to take the story off the old site, and I needed to move it over to the new site, but I didn't want to just post the old content. I wanted the new content up. So I put a notice up that the story was being edited and finished. Um, and that's where my, that was my tactical, my, that's where my tactical blunder about posting the rough draft, um, the, the partial rough draft, the, the work in progress came to be shown to be a mistake is because from the moment I pulled it until I started posting it, until I started posting the final version, the harassment was, was nonstop. It was a relentless barrage of when is it going to be up? When is it going to be up? When is it going to be up? Are you writing? Are you writing? Are you writing? And I would have cussed out so many people. Oh my god! I still will. I was so, if you have those emails, I'll be more than happy to email them today. <laughs> it's been years, so she'd be happy to cuss you out. Um, I would. So, and, and if is, you were one of them, just be aware that I would be happy to cuss you out. See, the first story I actually posted that was final was my story from the next July, I think it was. Um, my story from the next July, Restoration, my first Harry Potter story that I wrote on Rough Trade. That was actually the first story that I finished and finished, got final, final, my first Rough Trade story that got all the way to the end and was posted. And so it went up when Emergence was down and people lost their shit over that. Um, why wasn't I posting Emergence? Why did I put this other story up? I promised it wouldn't be down for long. Da, 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 da. It was just, I was like, oh, I was, I was just so, and so I knew there was this thing I was massively unhappy with in the story. Okay. And in retrospect, I should have just taken it out, but I kept trying to figure out how to, how to put, I had this bandaid workaround that I had slapped on in the rough draft. And I just got all frozen up and locked up about the whole thing. And I just desperately wanted it off my plate. So I kept that thing I wasn't happy with in the story. And it would have massively simplified my life. And it would have simplified the story. And it would have helped the pacing if that was out. It was a big deal to leave that in. And I have regretted it every time I think about it, that I left that 
major element. It wasn't even a major element, but it felt like a major element because it took so much work to deal with this thing that didn't need to be there. And um, and so I and I talked about this before. It was the spirit spirit guide element that was a holdover from me mirroring the Sentinel stuff um, mm-hmm. that did not need to be present in the plot. And it was awkward all the way around and having to deal with it and how I chose to implement it. It just was all didn't work. And so I kept slapping Band-Aids on it. And I should have just removed it. But I didn't have that clarity of thought until I was actually done with this complete rough draft. And by that point, the pressure to post was so immense that I just didn't care anymore. And I just posted it. So that was a case of where I powered through and kept going past the problem. Um, and I don't think the powering through was the issue. I think what that le- where I went after that was, was a problem. Um, and yes, I could, I could go through and rewrite that story, but of the, of the many, many projects on my plate, rewriting the first book of Emergence is not... Um, it doesn't even sound all that gratifying, honestly. Um, so, I mean, but I might, I might just get in a really big editing mood one day, <laughs> go edit like 40,000 words out of that story. So you never know. Um, when you do that, put a note on it saying you don't want to hear jack shit from anybody about it. Yeah. I don't care if you don't like the rewrite. Um, but that so I I don't I don't regret powering through when I knew I had a plot problem because I could have fixed it in the in in editing I could have fixed that problem and it would have I would have been annoyed that I didn't have that clarity of thought at, at, from the jump but it, I could have still fixed it but there were other issues that came into play with the that whole thing um, I have stopped in challenge usually me stopping is related to something else not really the story. Um, usually when I have an issue with the story these days, um, I stop and figure it out. I stop then and figure it out. And sometimes I'm able to figure it out on my own. And sometimes I go to Kira or the bitches or, you know, I, I, I you know, put it out there and I try to get some advice about how is, why isn't this working? What am I doing wrong? What am I not seeing? And, and then I'll stop and replot. And so sometimes there'll be like a, a lag in my participation in a challenge. Like I'll get started and then I stop and I um, go and re- and replot and fix something. Um, and so that's a case of where me kind of stopping. I haven't just ever bat out of a challenge. I don't think because of a plot problem. Um, deal with issues later and rewrite. I've done that too. Um, that's obviously not something that's obvious to anybody. Um, So, yeah, that's the powering through and dealing with the issues later. Um, and the thing is, I do think the thing, my thing that's, the thing that's important is that these days I would prefer to stop and fix my problem than to power through and, and deal with it and rewrite. But that's because I haven't had an issue identifying the problem and fixing it at the time. Um, if I'm stuck for weeks, that, would, I, that, ha- that hasn't become a scenario that's come up where I get stuck for weeks and can't sort, sort things out. Um, I don't know what I would do if I stalled out that hard. So that that hasn't been my scenario that I could answer. 
I think that when you have um, a kind of stall out that lasts for a long time, um, that a lot of times it's um, not an issue in the writing. Um, For me, it's usually an issue in the brain. Um, And until I figure out what's going on in my head that's causing me to stall, um, the story is, is nothing. It's it's meaningless because whatever's going on in my head has to come first. Yeah. Because if I've got a tripping in there, um, you didn't mean to, Ellie, but you just hit my biggest pet peeve in the world. There is no such thing as closure. It is a myth. <laughs> it is an unattainable thing that people tell you you should strive for to make you go away so they don't have to deal with your emotional issues and problems. The first time somebody told me I needed to get closure over something that happened to me, um, I slapped them in the face before I could help myself because I was so furious in that moment that they could, that they had this idea that they could determine that, um, you know, closure is often um, uh, offered up as a solution to trauma. Like, and you just want to just, and I did, I slapped the shit out of her because, uh, there's no such thing. Trauma, trauma doesn't close. You can overcome it. You can you can put you can you can deal with it. You can accept it. You can move on from it. But it's always there. There's no end of it. it, it that's just my personal experience. But I'm not picking on you. Don't think I am, sweetheart. Um, it's just it drives me back strip. That word. That word makes me want to stab people. Not you. Particularly. <laughs> Although I do have my fork pointing at you right now on the computer. <laughs> the kinds of, well, I guess, I mean, my, that's my experience too, is the kinds of things that people tend to tell you need closure about are not the kinds of things. That, the idea of closure, the whole, the whole word implies that you're done with it. And the kinds of things they tell you that about, you can never be done with. So, right. Um, and the thing is, when it comes to that, when it comes to emergence, um, any kind of sense of completion kind of thing, um, I mean, I'm not, I, I haven't closed down the idea that I might go back and rewrite that story someday. I just feel like doing a major rewrite, it, it, it's a time suck from other projects that I'm more interested in. And um, the only way I can think of, that, the, only, the only reason I can think of that I would be willing to do that is if I got a major reawakening of interest in that I wanted to like my next project be working on the sequel some more, and then in order to make and I think that I probably would want to fix some things to make the whole sequel process go better. So, um, and also if she's not had enough dragons on her Facebook recently, <laughs> yeah. If I'm running low on yeah, if I'm running low on dragon pianos. Um, <laughs> But speaking of dragons, I am super jealous of the art that you got from Sybil. It is so beautiful. Isn't that lovely? 
that. I love that. It's my it's my it's my it's my background on my computer. It's gorgeous. Great job, Sybil. I love the I love drag, the dragon art that was done for the story. Sybil's um, um, Sunrider did some art for me. Um, there's somebody else. I'm blank, I'm blank. I keep I'm blanking on the name of the other person who. Just, just three people have drawn art for for that for the story, and I'm I'm feeling like an idiot because I'm blanking on the third person's name. <laughs> she went oh, over to her website. Oh. I did go over to my website, but I apparently screwed up um my homepage because the links to the two pe- the art from the two people who had done them was right on my homepage and Apparently, it got hit. That part got zapped when I had my site problem. Um, well, hell, I will have to recover that. Um, anyway, um, but yeah, the, 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 the drawings were all incredible. Um, let's see. Um, I have now. If I'm not in challenge, um, I set stories aside all the time. Like, oh I, yeah, it's almost a daily. It's almost a daily occurrence. It's like, oh, that's not working for me right now. And if I'm in, the thing is, if I I'm in the mood to write, yeah, if I'm in the mood to write, I don't want. And I hit a stumbling block. It's really common for me to set the thing I said stumbling block on aside, aside, and pick up the thing I can write on, because being in the really when I'm really in the mood to really get to tell a story. I don't want to be, you know, trying to figure out why that idea wasn't working. <laughs> like, no, I don't want to problem solve right now. I want to write. Um, and there's a whole, there is a whole petulance about it. It's like, don't fuck with my creative time with all these problems. So, um, and sometimes I come back and I look at something. It's not uncommon for Evil Author Day for me to go back and look at works that I've set aside and I go, Oh well, yeah, that's patently obvious. What was wrong with that? <laughs> Dig in and fix it. Um, and that's just that case of time. And I, I can tell people all the time: it just needs time. It just needs time. It just needs time. You know, be willing to give yourself time. And I think there's this there's this thing. You know, not everybody, but a lot of people in fandom are like, if I wrote it, I have to post it, and they don't want to give themselves that time to figure out what their problem is. Um, and that is that is some kind of I'm 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 gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to flat out say that it's an addiction to feedback, that that it's like they won't wind up in some if they they're in some kind of that that the comments and the interaction with readers is why they're writing, and that 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 they write if, if they can't get that payoff when they have spent a few hours writing they they lose their will to write. And I don't know what to do with that, honestly. I, I don't know how to speak to that person because the craft clearly isn't um, the craft of writing clearly isn't their main priority. So 
that's usually not this the writer also we're the talking to. This is the same person that when you tell them you're a writer, they, they tell you, oh, I've always been writing a book about my life, because that would be so interesting. I would love to read your autobiography. <laughs> yeah, because autobiography is a main reading source for me. Yep. No, they're really not. Oh, the only one worse, actually, is the person that tells them you, that they that you should write about their life. <laughs> no, I'm like, no, dog. <laughs> no. <laughs> but no, there there is there is a breed of writer in fandom who who does it for attention, and it is a special kind of narcissism um, that um, I find um, particularly offensive. Um, they are the ones who uh, blackmail you for feedback and who don't post if they don't get a number, a certain number of comments or a certain number of kudos. And they take screenshots of their shit and post it on groups. And they are really proud of how many kudos they get and how many comments they get. And they respond to all their comments and thank you. So they bloat their comment section in Amazon like they got 10,000 comments instead of 5,000 because they've responded to every single goddamn comment they've ever had. Well, not just responded. There are some. Somebody posted once on a group on Facebook about how they had the number one most commented on fic in their fandom. And that's a bizarre statistic to tell people. To me, it's people commenting. Especially when you go over there and find out she's been having ongoing discussions with her readers on the fic. It's long. Every reader, basically, this writer tried to stir up conversation with every single reader. And so on every chapter, there's multiple back and forths with, you know, about a core of about six readers that they do, you know, sometimes 30 comments deep, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's threaded, right? So it's like, it's nice. These replies go 30 deep on a single original comment. And it's like, it's you and six people. What are you doing? And, you know, her and six people, generated thousands of comments on, you know, something that was chaptered like a thousand words per chapter. So it's got lots of chapters. And then they go and post the statistic about how they have the most commented on um, story in their fandom. And I'm like, well, <laughs> did you think nobody was going to figure out that that was mostly you <laughs> commenting on your story? So it's just it's just a bizarre. And I'm not saying you can't thing. respond to your readers. Sometimes you know your reader will give you something that you want to respond to. I just there is that certain group of readers who think that you are required to respond to them. No, your comment is not equal to the 500k I just put my put up on my website. We did not have an equal exchange here. Granted, I never actually posted 500K at one time. But what I'm saying is, it's not equal. Your two-paragraph comment does not equal 115,000 words of, of craft I just put on my website for you to enjoy and read. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't care. If people want to say thank you to everyone that reads it, that's fine. But it's just... It does, you know, be aware. It, I mean, it does cause comment bloat. So you having a high comment count, and that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. You need to divide like by two. 
if you do shit like that. It's, like just, it's just like a story of unconnected one-shots that focus on a lot of fandom. Having a high kudos count doesn't mean anything. People are kudos giving you kudos on one chapter that's based on the fandom that they came in to read, and they aren't even reading the rest. So, it, you know, somebody asked me something, a question about a story that's like that. Like, I said, one shot from different fandoms. I said, I can't believe the number of kudos. And I said, well, so I don't know about the content of the story, but I can tell you that what's happening here is that you've got, you know, some big fandoms and some small fandoms, and um, you're getting readership coming from, you know, 50 different places as opposed to one. So it creates, it's, it's, artif- it's an artificial statistic. It doesn't, it has no meaning. So quit ascribing meaning to that. And I found that really intimidating. I'm like, why are you intimidated by that? It doesn't mean anything. You know, it doesn't mean anything. I, it doesn't, you know, none of, none of those things that people look at for statistics don't, they don't mean anything. I mean, I tend to, <laughs> I'm I'm not I'm not immune from this. I do often when I'm on AO3, when I especially if I'm going into a new fandom or a new pairing or trying out something, or trying out you know a tag, especially a tag for a kink or something, I will sort by kudos, assuming that kudos is somehow indicative of the amount of readership a story has had. Because you can't don't go by hits. Because somebody who posts 30k in one chapter in one in one go, and they they do put 30k up as a one shot, it, it's going to have way less hits than somebody who posted 1,000-word chapters, 30,000-word chapters, um, several days apart. Because there is some timer um, that AO3 has on when a story generates a second hit. And it's not going from chapter to chapter. But if the chapters are posted days apart, it will generate a new hit every time a new chapter is posted. So you you can't judge by hits. You can't judge by any of these artificial statistics, but I have done that thing where I start by kudos thinking I'm going to get quality stories that the popular stuff will have risen to the top on the kudos heat because people will have read the good stuff. More people will hit kudos on stuff that's good. No, that doesn't work out all the time. It does not work out. I have read in fandoms where the, the most popular story in the fandom was absolute garbage. Okay? And I can't even say what fandom or anything like that because it... <laughs> I'm, I'm you take your ass over to AO3 and figure it out. <laughs> but I ran into this the other day where, like, the first story up in my sort, and I sorted by kudos, it was like a fifty-five or 60,000-word story, and my suspension of disbelief was shattered in the first paragraph. I have never had that happen before. One <laughs> paragraph. It, I mean, we're not talking about a little bit of a failure of suspension of disbelief. It was utterly wrecked. It was like my, my suspension of disbelief bit down on the cyanide capsule. It was dead. It was over. <laughs> Do anybody else just picture that scene from Dune? Where that dude <laughs> tried to kill the Baron? Because I did. The Duke tries to kill the Baron. Yeah. I was like, and the thing is, I have that big debate when I'm reading on AO3. Because like, reading on my tab- tablet is a little difficult. Ultimately, at night, I try not to do it too much because... You know, the light from those kinds of devices will keep you awake. But also it's heavy. You know, as light as they've become, they're still heavy. And, they're, you know, it's easier for me to read on my actual Kindle, like a Kindle e-ink reader. That, those are so easy on the eyes to me. Um, and they, I can turn the light way down, the backlight on them way down, so that it's not, like, stimulating my brain as much. 
And so there's always that debate. Do I send this to my Kindle or do I wait and see if it's worth reading? And I made the fucking mistake of sending it to my Kindle, this 50K story, and I go get my Kindle, and I get up to the first. I load it up, and I skip through past all the preliminary stuff and the summaries and all the tags and crap, and I get to the first first paragraph, and I went, oh, my God. <laughs> I should have just read the first. Who knew? Delete. I could eliminate a story on a first paragraph. Cause, oh, it was just, it was just yeah. tragic. Delete, delete, <sighs> delete. I also the thing about the Kindle is it's, all, it's very easy to delete. A, uh, it is, but then I have to go up to my, I have to eventually go, you know, I have to make note of it. I can get rid of it, but I have to then make note that I canned it because I have to go up to my content library and delete it from there too. Otherwise, it will sit there forever. And I will wonder, what is that? This doesn't seem familiar. And you'll click and on it again, it again and, go, and then you'll be disappointed shit. again. Yep. I almost want to. I almost want to give them the slow clap of appreciation because I have like never seen anybody fail in the suspense of disbelief so hard in the first chapter. I mean, first the first paragraph. It was just wow, wow. Holy shit! Okay. And you know, there wasn't anything obviously wrong. Like I always look to see if I do. I have a wall of text. Do they have any bizarre things going on in their formatting? Are they failing to use? Quote marks. I mean, is there anything weird happening here? None of that was readily, readily obvious until I dug into this first paragraph and I went, oh, come on. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. So, by the way, I'm just saying, I'm not playing any more of those stupid Facebook, um, click on this and find out what your superhero, you know, thing is or whatever. This one was, what is the song of your life? And I click on it and it says it was Jesus Take the Wheel. And <laughs> my wrist. I saw that. my wrist getting out of that. I was like, what the I fuck? hurt myself laughing. I'm so sorry. But, you know, here's the thing. Um, I really did hurt myself because I had food poisoning on Thanksgiving. I didn't get to actually cook. I woke up with a headache and so I laid down took a little nap. Um, and then I woke up and everything was terrible. I'll, I'll spare you the details. But the end result is, is that my reaction was so violent that all the muscles in my chest and stomach have hurt since Thursday. So when That's I saw a lot that, of mama to do for you. Yeah, et cetera. Um, I, it, it was it was agonizing. I am not surprised. I would have not been surprised to to have cracked a rib. That's how violent it was. Um, I'm seeing the doctor on Monday, tomorrow. I'm seeing a doctor on tomorrow to make sure I didn't get into my bloodstream. Um, but I managed to get home. I'm fine. Um, <clears throat> but I would not have been surprised to crack a rib. That's how violent it was. Um, so when I saw that shit, I laughed. And it hurt so much, but I could not stop laughing. <laughs> 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 It, it really hurt, but I could not stop laughing. I just, I was so amused by that Jesus take the wheel. It, it was just more than I could take. <laughs> I was like, I'm not cooking on this shit anymore. If they're gonna do that kind of, if they're gonna treat me like that, I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> How dare they? <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Ah. Then worse was what it said. It's like when times in your life get rough, you turn to your faith. And I'm like, oh, I 
How dare you? Get me out of here. <laughs> Your face is Tom Middleton. It was right after that my sister's like, what are we going to watch? I said, Tom Hiddleston's perfect shirt. She just started <laughs> laughing and went and put it on. <laughs> of course that's what we're watching. What else is there? Well, we also watched West Tarzan right after that. So there was the well, naked okay. chest. Yeah. That, but, you know, that's, we don't really watch I those. I watch that be on mute every day. Am I the only one? Oh, I don't yeah. think so. No, that's you just feel free to run around half dressed as much as you want, Alexander Skarsgård. We're fine with it. Except <laughs> <laughs> the ant thing. I look, you know, I do have an ant phobia, so I do have a little. You know, I'm thinking about myself part. That, that he and Tom Hilson need to be in a movie together. <laughs> I have no problem with this. None. I don't know what it would be, they want to... but they should be naked through most of it. <laughs> If they want to bring Jason Momoa in on the cast and have him be yeah, okay, yeah, too. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're good. We're good. Um, so Sybil had a question. Um, it was on my, one of my, it's on one of the, one of the posts. Oh, yeah. Her Chris Hemsworth can join huh? too. It could be like. What? Chris Hemsworth. I mean, and it could be like, I don't know what it could be. Um, we'll think of something. The pectorals club. I'm fine with it. Um, <laughs> so Sybil says they could be hot ass mercenaries off to rescue somebody else equally hot. <laughs> the not expendables. <laughs> <laughs> These guys are in no way expendable. <laughs> they look good. They kick ass. <laughs> and Jason Statham could be in either movie. <laughs> Okay, so Sybil's question was that she loves lots of description, and it may be the artist in me, but when writing or reading, do you prefer lots of description or hints and bits that are just mentioned? Um, as a person, I know a lot of people who like a lot of descriptions. Um, there are some genres that lend themselves more to a lot of like descriptive per- paragraphs. I tend to not read in those genres. Um, it's not my writing style either because it's not something I personally like because pacing is pacing is almost more important to me than, than anything besides characterization. Um, so it's like yeah, characterization. Well, it might be it might be characterization, consistency, and then pacing. Um, I, I really can't put pacing above consistency because I don't care what the pace is like. If you've got consistency, it's just I'm going to stab you in the fork. So... Um, <laughs> But I really need all three of those. I need consistency, I need good characterization, and I need good pace. So a lot of descriptive phrases can can be really hard on pace, especially certain genres don't do well with um, a lot of descriptive phrases, whereas other genres lend themselves more and need more description. Um, particularly sci-fi and fantasy do do really do need, you know, when you're really – like, like I'm talking like high fantasy. You do need a lot more descriptions, descriptive phrases to um, set the scene because you can't just say, you know, they walked into a room and let the audience fill in the um, the details for themselves because in the way that kind of makes the story work really well for them, 
because the audience may not have any frame of reference by which to construct the room that they're in. For instance, you know, if, if Tolkien had described us what a hobbit hole was, um, would, would we have any frame of reference for constructing that? Or would we just all be envisioning like a, a cave and, and like a little molehill on the ground or something? It would be weird. Um, but despite Tolkien actually giving us a lot of description, I actually had no good view in my head for the Eye of Sauron until um, Jackson interpreted that for me. Thank you, Peter Jackson, yeah, for interpreting that in um, a way that I could get. Although, um, I mean, I get it. His interpretation makes sense. But also, I'm 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 not sure I'm on board with the fire vagina. <laughs> Sometimes, well, I mean, you know, it is what it is. Um, yes, it is. I just, yeah. <laughs> I didn't. I've never saw I vagina. Mean, in when it, I looked at now, it, I now I may not be able to unsee that. Well, I looked at it. Oh, I to myself, lady well. Come on now. You went too far. Go stand in the corner. I can't believe that. I put you you in the corner. In the corner. Make room, as. <laughs> corner she had in for. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, not really. Some, I, some, I, I, I can't even know that either. who saw that and thought fire vagina. I refuse to believe that. <laughs> but I might but, have been. But now I'm not. So the next time you guys watch it, that, that's all you're going to see. You're welcome. That is all. That is all I'm going to see. Um, <laughs> but I mean, there. Like when I edit, one of the things I'm editing for is pace, and especially when people get into a lot of description, a lot of descriptive stuff. There's more things that I get on people about because, like, hey, this is affecting your pace. Um, I had one really cooperative writer who I said, this scene is really affecting your pace and this is why I don't think that anything in this scene really adds to the story except for this one bit. Um, could we, you know, and the next, when I got her edits back, she just killed the whole scene. <laughs> I was like, wow, that was really, I said, what do you, cause I asked her, what do you want to do about this? That's a content change, right? So I asked her, what do you want to do about this? How do you want to approach it? And the next thing when I got it back, she just deleted the whole thing. And I was like, oh, thank you for not fussing. Um, <laughs> and Appreciate her that. pacing was her pacing was so much better without that scene than it was with it. And um so and that there was a lot of descriptive oh, not dropped knock that off. But there was a lot of descriptive stuff in that scene, so, but it wasn't just the description that was an issue. So there's a lot of things that affect pace, but certainly too much detail or the wrong detail can affect pace. And when it comes to wrong detail, that is like, what are the wrong details? And that can become a function of, you know, what does the genre support giving that kind of detail? Um, is it meaningful? Is it advancing your story? Uh, you know, so there's a lot of factors into what details are important. I am always the kind of, because I'm an, I tend to be an impatient reader. Um, I, 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 I like genres and stories that are kind of light on that kind of stuff, So, and, or I tend to skim it. So I'm not the best judge ever of stories that do like a lot of scene setting or that try to you know, be very picturesque or, uh, just, you know, that kind of stuff, I, those, those things like a, 
I just don't, I just don't dig I it. I never it. read those kind of. I, I always, I always skimmed that stuff, and when I had to read that in, um, like when I had to read Charlotte Bronte in school, I just there's so much I mm-hmm. skipped. I skimmed, and it, it wasn't just description, but there was a lot of description that I skipped because I was like, I just don't give a flying fuck. Um, and it didn't. I hate it, and I blame John Stanback. Um, and I do. I, I mean, I genuinely believe John Stanback for this because, um. I'm not sure what kind of writer I would have been before I read Grapes of Wrath, but after I read Grapes of Wrath, I um, I have never wanted to see a turtle get hit by a truck so badly in my life. I'll just put that out there for you. I I I fucking hate John. Um, and it it really I was like, mm. and I actually had a passing fancy in writing fantasy. Um, um, and fantasy requires a lot of description, and I actually have a a hundred k fantasy novel sitting on my um hard drive that no one has ever read, uh, and um, and I don't know what I will ever do with it, and it it's uh, but Grapes of Wrath ruined me as a reader and as a writer because I I know, nope. Yeah, I no, can't. I'm just not doing it. <laughs> not ever doing we're just, it. We're just not doing it. it. It's the pearl. Oh, the pearl. Don't get me started. Oh my god. I don't know that man in the balls and then kicked him in the head um, before he started writing, but they are to blame for a great deal of trauma put on. Um, teenage readers who are forced to read that shit in high school. We, should, we, we didn't do anything to them. Why did they do that to us? The fact that Mary is he's not a bad writer. Um, John Stanback has a great um, uh, uh, voice. Um, he has an excellent grasp of language. He is um goat for storytelling is stunning. His choice of material is depressing as fuck. His reliance on allegory and metaphor was very common for his time period. Um, I think he'd be a very different writer in, in the modern world than he was then. Um, metaphor and um, allegory was very, very, very common during his time period. So he was very much a writer of his age. Um, and I don't – the man's talented. I, I'm not going to say he's not. Just like the Bronte sisters were talented, and they adhered to the writing standard of their day. Um, and – Modern readers, for the most part, find that deeply uncomfortable to read. <laughs> and Sundeck was just depressing as fuck. But then he wrote during a very depressing time period. And his subject matter um, was a reflection of the society that he lived in. Yeah, I read The Pearl in um, junior high. I read The Grapes of Wrath my senior year of high school. And 
it, yeah, you know, and sometimes sometimes those stories we have to read in in high school. Honestly, I think I think some of these stories when they're presented to us in high school is they're presented to us at a time when they're almost more scarring <laughs> to our to yeah. our reading to our to our reading habits than they are enlightening or helpful. They're not. I just don't think most teenagers are prepared to to, to process Steinbeck. And not have it negatively affect affect them in in terms of what they want to read. You may get to a point in your life where, or maybe in college, when you know that that when you if if you're the kind of person who really enjoys looking at classic literature and you want to dissect it and look at the um, the standards of that time or whatever. I mean, if that gets if that really is exciting to you, then then that's a good time in your life to read that. When they shove these books at you and they make you read stuff like Bronte and Steinbeck and um. It, it it's just. I mean, it really does. It does. It it. it I to me it, at the time in my my life, it kind of built a resentment about classic literature because I'm like the, like the worst stuff. I love to read, and I hated reading the stuff that my school was giving me to read. I hated it. Um, and I was like, why are they taking something that I enjoy so much and turning it into something I I dread? So. Um, yeah, but that was not just learn things from people like Steinbeck and or whatever, how you want to say his name or Virginia Woolf or Bronte or, um, I mean, I mean, when you you look at the scope of, um, the, the work that were put out in that, in that time period, um, which was the, um, which was really, the beginning of of modern fiction um and you look at writers like mary shelley who um was goth as fuck in her day <laughs> yeah and she carried her husband's heart around in a jar after he died that's goth as fuck <laughs> but no so, one applaud it's like writers, wow and um they threw open the door for us. So while I don't like to read Hemingway or frankly, any of the Bronte sisters or, um, or um, just, you know, even Mary Shelley, to be perfectly frank, she may be the mother of science fiction. um, And I super appreciate her. I don't like to read her. But I have a great deal of respect for the for the path they blazed for us as um as writers. Um because they opened the door for us, especially women like um Virginia Woolf and um the Bronte sisters and Mary Shelley who who showed um the world that um a woman's creativity could be just as compelling as a man's. Mm-hmm. Now, there were plenty of female writers in their day that wrote under a man's name just to get published. So while I don't enjoy their work, I respect the fuck out of the body of their work. I agree. And what they yeah. as, as writers. There are a lot of writers I respect immensely that I don't particularly enjoy their work. Um, and that's okay. You don't have to. 
um, you don't have to enjoy somebody's body of work or even like everything that they write in order to appreciate their skill, in order to appreciate the um, what they the contributions that they have made, the the the, the the ground they broke in their time period. Um, I like, well, first of all, I was like a classic author that is this popular. I like Jane Austen fairly well, but I don't like everything she wrote. Um, and man, with some Jane Austen fans, that's like a sin. You tell them like, you don't like everything that you, like, I don't have to be careful for Mansfield Park. Man, tell that to a Jane Austen fan, and they will be like, "What is the matter with you?" <laughs> or have your like, coronary on the floor. <laughs> I was, I'm like, calm I down. actually you know, like, like the Old Man in the Sea. Um, it's one of the few Hemingway works that I that I really enjoyed when I was younger. Um, I really dug it, and um, it's that's rare because I'm not really a big fan of Hemingway. Um, but I don't know. Sometimes something will just 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 strike you, which is the whole point. When when words grab you. And that's yeah, you know, kind of my as a writer is I that I want to tell a story, and, and even if it only grabs one person, and they're like, "Holy shit, look what you did!" That's enough. Yeah. But you can. You can appreciate what somebody. I mean, there are there are people who write with a lot of descriptive detail that I still read. I just tend to skim when they start describing stuff. I tend to start skimming, um, and that's not. It's not like that's a crime. It doesn't mean you don't like the work. It means that you actually like the work enough to read outside of your your usual genre. Okay, so if I'm reading something that has a lot of description in it. I it's because I like it enough to to have gotten past my usual preference for not having a lot of descriptive phrases and in um, stories. And no, you don't have to like everything somebody writes. Um, I don't expect people to. It's weird. People sometimes will like write me and tell me that they're not reading a story of mine for a particular reason. And I find that to be so bizarre because I never expect that people do read and like absolutely everything I write because it's they're and I don't care. My, like my. Yeah, I don't. I don't care. And my my favorite author um, in fandom, you know, there are some things of hers I haven't. I I don't read. So I mean, it's just it's just an odd thing that people expect that liking something means a fanatical like, <laughs> and that's what that is when you're expected to like everything. Is that that's a level of, that's kind of a fanatical thing. Um. People had to like everything I liked. All you bitches would be playing townships. I'm just saying. Um, but so I, I do think that there's definitely, um, in terms of the descriptive thing, there's there's definitely a place for that. That there's people who love that. So there's there's an audience for pretty much anything, right? So um, there are people who love that, and then there are people who who don't like it. And so you, there's there's writers for both places but there is also on on the more of a of the you know original fiction side of things there some genres don't lend themselves well to a lot of descriptive a lot of heavy descriptive phrases and you might get you know either told to edit the fuck out of this or you won't get rejected because you just get the rejection yeah 
you aren't meeting the style of the of the genre. So, well, um, yeah, because the fact of the matter is, is that as um, and I do think that you know, uh, as talented as Jane Austen um, was in her day, that she's not publishable in the modern fiction market. She could not compete in the modern fiction market. Neither could Tolkien. Well, maybe Tolkien, because you got to look at somebody like, well, he had to swing out some dick, um, actually. <laughs> or a little less dick. Um, well, yeah, I mean, they, there would have to be some sex. You could not publish something like Lord of the Rings in today's modern fiction market as a new work from a new author and have no sex in it. And there's a reason why Game of Thrones is so popular, and it's not all the death. No. No. It's all the fucking. And the dragons. It's all Let's be real. And dragons. It's fucking and dragons. Let's just be honest. Yeah. Um, But it's, you know, when you look at... um, but the thing is, I think an author like Jane Austen, who was such a trailblazer in her in her time period, I think that she would adapt to what the market. She would be one of the people who would be. I think she would be very adaptable to what the market wanted her to write. Um, right. So I think in that way she would do fine. It's but just, the original work would not. No, the, the, her works as they were, I don't. I agree with you. I don't think they would do well. Should be a self. Should be self pubbed. <laughs> There you go, folks. This is the reality is Jane Austen's works as they are in this market today should be self-published. Um, but so there, but there is there's there's a place you know these days I think that there's a place for almost everything. Um, there are fan fiction writers who love a lot of descriptive detail, who write with a lot of descriptive detail. So if that's your thing, you can find that out there. I know it exists because. You know, I, I've read some really good stories that had a lot of descriptive bits, and I tended to skim a lot. Um, but there was enough there that I really enjoyed that I just kept going and skimming, you know, all the scene setting. So, but it is, it does become, if, when when you have to stop and skim a lot because you're hitting a lot of descriptive stuff, it it does affect the pace of the story. No matter, there's, there's no way... A ton of description doesn't affect pacing. So that is where you put it is important. It is super, super, super important where those descriptive bits come in. Um, Because the last thing you want to do is throw a plateau in when you're about to hit the climax of the story. Um, You just can't do it. (laughs) it. It can actually make the whole story feel flat. Because the climax is kind of then has it, it kind of hits a, it kind of hits a dull note. So if you are throwing in a bunch of detail at just the wrong moment, um, you can make the 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 big moment in your story feel like it has no punch to it, and that's just never anybody's goal. I would hope it would be like having a whole bunch of sex and no orgasm. Yeah. Or, I mean, I don't know, this may only ever happen to me, but I'll just throw out there, have you ever had that orgasm that's kind of a dud? I was like, oh, what was that? <laughs> it was not quite what you expected it to be. Yeah, you're like, you ever well, have a little one but... when you were expecting a big one? Because I've had yeah, that it's happen. Like it, hap- 
Yeah, it's like it happened, but you really would have rather read a book. Um, and that is what throwing a pacing problem in right before the climax of the story is like. It's like the climax itself then feels kind of either it's jarring or it feels like meh. It's a little pop instead of a bang. Yeah. And and especially if somebody's done a lot of work and they've put a lot of effort in and then they 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 basically um declawed their climax. That's just that's just not good. Don't do declawed it. Declawed their climax. <laughs> We're gonna have to name a podcast that don't declaw your climax. I wonder how many hits that would get before they realized it wasn't about sex. Um, <laughs> well, sort of indirectly is. Especially if your climax of your story is sex. It's an erotica. It can be. Um, but, yeah, I, I do think that um, a lot of classical um, literature um, is boring. But I appreciate their... Uh, their skill and their talent uh, as writers. I just don't find the material and the themes engaging. And that's because of the time period that we're raised in Um, and the kinds of things we've been exposed to. If you think about the, the breadth of entertainment that we have um, in today's um, in, in the world today, it is so vastly different than what um, readers had available to them when um, when Mary Shelley was p- putting out a novel, when Jules Verne was was coming on to the fe- to, to the field. Uh, you look at these um, these writers, and is that how you say Verne? What, what was his name? Mm-hmm. I, I, I said that wrong. No, you said Jules Verne. It it felt wrong. You ever say something and it just not seem right? <laughs> Yes, but, yes. The word nestle always feels like I just spit the wrong thing out of my mouth. <laughs> you just fucked it all up. Mary Shelley opened up a world to her readers that they had never experienced before. When you say that she was the mother of science fiction, she literally was the mother of science fiction. She opened up a a genre to readers that they had never seen before on that scale and she explored concepts about humanity and the loss of humanity and um, the God complex uh, that is to this day very compelling. There is a reason why Frankenstein has told over and over and over and over again in many, many different ways and it's because it's so fascinating and you got to respect that kind of um, that kind of creativity, although I don't enjoy reading her work. Um, I respect the fuck out of her brain because holy shit, lady, <laughs> you go. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes you just like, yeah. Mary Shelley is like, sometimes it feels like she was just in a league of her own at that time. And she was at that time. She was in a league of her own. Um, and I love people with an immense amount of creativity. Now, there are there have been times where I have read a book where the author was so masterful with giving you description that they could do it in a way that they were giving you a fair amount of description without dragging the pace down. Um, and it, it, it is 
I would say it's like advanced craft to be able to impart certain things succinctly in a way that's also interesting and not affect pace. I mean, it, it's like it's, it's weaving together multiple skills to be able to really set a scene and give you good description without it being, without it being affect the pace at all. Um, and to do it in a way that is kind of still has some brevity to it that you're not just getting bogged down in paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of description. And some writers do that really, really well. And I'm, I'm kind of in awe of their skill that they can um, very quickly and set a scene for you and that you feel like you're totally immersed in it. I would say most writers don't do that well that I've read. Um, it's one or the other. Too, I, I think that yeah. you get one skill, you, you, you get one skill down and then you got to move on to another. And um, I think a lot of writers leave that kind of thing to the last. Yeah. Because it's, it can be kind of boring to read and to write. Well, it's hard. It's sort of like, it, it, it's not easy to write that way. I'm sure the people, I don't believe it just flows out that way. They have to edit that and edit it and rethink how to phrase it and get that phrasing exactly right so that. Oh, I think some people probably do it very naturally. Um, just like some people do, um, um, uh, dialogue very naturally. It just comes to them like breathing. I think that there has to be some people out there who just, who have a very, who have a natural skill for setting a scene. Um, and you, you look at your own skills and your own things that come very naturally to you um, and things that you have to work for. Um, I find it kind of baffling that people have to work on their dialogue. <laughs> that that baffles me. I don't know why you have to – don't you listen to people talk? That's the first thing I think. And I'm not trying to judge anybody who does that, okay? I'm not trying to judge you. It's just it's so foreign to me that somebody would have to work on that because it's something that comes very naturally to me. Um and I find the whole idea that you would ag- be, um, be agonizing over a sentence that somebody's saying kind of alien. I don't, not you personally, because I, I, I know you don't really have a problem with that either. Um, but so while I'm agonizing over descriptions, somebody else is agonizing over dialogue. <laughs> yeah. And there are people who very naturally write an action sequence. They can make it. It's short, it's to the point, and they convey a lot. As people can write long action sequences and have them be fascinating. A lot of times long action sequences are boring. Um, but the knowing how to focus on an action scene, that is an acquired skill. Now, for me personally, I do try to set scenes a little bit and try to give people a little bit about what characters look like and stuff, but I definitely don't get into it like some authors do. It's just because I don't enjoy it, and I figure the reader can you know, supply it. You know, if I say somebody's got blonde hair and blue eyes and strong features, that they can go off and figure out what that looks like for themselves, you know, in general. Um, but, you know, of, of, the two, of the two skills I just mentioned, between being able to write really good descriptive, you know, really good description and scene setting and being able to write good action, I, the skill I, I'm trying harder to cultivate is the action. Um, I would love for somebody just to pass that down to me. You know, like if you could just say, okay, hey, I like really good action, and you write really good dialogue, so um, I'm going to give you my action, and you're going to give me the dialogue, and it would be perfect. I'm like, yeah, okay, great. Yeah. How do we do we're, that? We're going to mind share on this one. <laughs> Is um, there a ritual? 
we need to draw a circle. The funny thing is, I never, I never worked. I never worked on really improving dialogue. Like I never worked on. It was never getting dialogue down was not something I ever really um, struggled. Like you said, I, I didn't struggle with it. But when I look back at like my early work, I think my dialogue has improved, and that's just that's just I think just a function of how I speak and as my own vocabulary has improved, and you know it's a function of time. That when I look at stuff I wrote when I was twenty, that my dialogue now is better than it was then, um, and also I'm able to write more. My character voices are more distinct now than they were then, and one of the reasons why I would work really hard at, like, I would read my dialogue out and stuff, is because one of the things I struggled with it wasn't so much writing dialogue, it was getting my character voices to be distinct. Was something that I had a little bit of a hard time with when I was younger, and that was where reading it out for me was really helpful. Was because I could really hear. That the cadence and the and the language making you know, the use of language was too similar between characters when I would, when I would read it out loud, um, but it evolved over time. It just evolved through practice as opposed to evolving through deliberate effort on dialogue because it's just not a particular area that I've ever put focused effort into improving. Because, it, like you said, it wasn't ever. That's what. That's the thing that was never really a struggle for me. I could have, if they could have said stories were all dialogue, I'd have been like, I'm in. I'm in. Yay! <laughs> I could have Let's people talk scripts endlessly. <laughs> well, the director figure out the action, but no. <laughs> but yeah, I mean. Uh, there's just some skills I think that um, as you come into the craft of writing that you bring to the table. And that's why I think that, um, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, that writers are born. Um, you can be taught structure. You can be taught to diagram a sentence. You can be, you can be told what pace is, but you can't be taught to be creative. And your voice, your writer's voice is something you have to nurture on your own. So it can't be given to you. Um, so, yeah, that's just my opinion. Yeah. You can be taught technical writing, boring ass, you write manuals and (laughs) Dude, that's a whole different, I mean, I don't even, it's in such a different, it's such a different headspace to be technically right, but I will say it is, it is a technical writing, the ability to convey information and make it. Um, there's, it's both a creative and a, and a, it's both, it's a left and right brain process, technical writing, depending on the kind mm-hmm. of writing you're doing, because there's different kinds of technical writing, right? Writing an abstract is not the same thing as writing a user manual. And I, I was more of a user manual kind of person, but it is a different kind of skill. People who really do well writing and user documentation that can really explain. I mean, we've all had the manual that's like, oh, my God, this is a dream. I understand everything I need to do. And the manual that had you scratching your head going, what the fuck? I'm so lost. As a person who wrote the original stereo instructions. Yes. We're talking about you. Every technical writer can do everything, and not every writer is cut out to be a technical writer. And I've seen some creative writers try to make the switch into technical writing because, frankly, technical writing pays better. That's the hard truth, folks. Um, yeah. Maybe I should just say technical writing pays and creative writing often does not. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, that would be great, too. um, I'm not sure I could do technical writing. I get bored too easily. When I'm bored, I'm not writing. If if, if I'm bored writing it, nope. Also, if you if you if you want to do a significant amount of creative writing, um, doing being a technical writer could cut into that because you may hit a limit per day of how much you can because it's still a creative writing is whether it's technical writing or not. There is still a creative process there. You deciding and there's how also to, a physical it, process. Yes, that whole but the whole the mecha- the creative side part part of it that goes into how am I going to express this in a way that's clear, making those decisions as well as the physical act of writing, when you do that for eight hours and then you want to go home and sit down and creatively write for a couple hours, it can be the time in my life I've written the least was the years I was doing full-time technical writing. Um, fortunately, that was not a big big stretch in my career. Um, I've done technical writing to some degree, almost every job I've ever had, but um, you know, I, that was not my primary occupation for most of my career. Um, but there were a couple of years where I just did freelance technical writing because it was an easy thing for me to fall back to do between jobs was, well, technical write. And um, I, I just didn't do much creative writing at all because I did it all day. It felt like I was writing all day. And I just was like, I want to I, I read. I want to do anything that is not that to do with trying to impart something. Fuck that. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, it's 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 an it's an odd thing to both creatively write and technically write do technical writing at the same time. Um, I think Kira and I somebody made a comment that Kira and I might work well together as writers. I I think we could like, collaborate on a universe, but we don't think we could write the same story. Um, no. At the same time, I don't think I don't think we could be co-writers of the same work. I think we could write in the same universe separately, um, but um, we're both very good at following world building and and and, and keeping within the rules. Um, but we're also yeah. um, OCD controlling assholes, and we would fight. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. We probably we probably I don't know if we would fight, but we would just you know. We would get really would in on frustrated a, with each other. It, it would start to get. It would, we would start to get frustrated. Yeah, and if we weren't frustrated with yeah. each other, the thing is, in trying not to take our this for me, it would be more like in trying to take my frustration out on Kira. I would I would lose interest in the story. So um, we'd be talking to Lady Holder. She's so unreasonable. <laughs> well, I get the thing is, I, the thing is, Kira and I have very similar sensibility about a lot of things. We would probably be unreasonable about a lot of the same things. The problem is the things we'd be unreasonable about is where we'd have a difference of opinion. I think it should be this way. Well, I think it should be this way. Um, and well, come your own damn story. That don't work. <laughs> so. <sighs> no, we would be telling you, Lady Holder, that each other was unreasonable. <laughs> Yeah, that's what would happen. She'd be the you about each other. <clears throat> yeah, she'd be the person we both be going to. Going, I cannot, I can't work with her. She's driving me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but we could, we could collaborate on like a world. That is, I don't think that would be a problem at all. But it's just writing in the writing in the same story is it is a very difficult to find a co-writer that you can really co-write with where you are working on the same story. Um, and every time I didn't realize this, but every time I've I've had a co- I've done the co-writing thing, 
I've co-written several stories. Um, one went really well, but I found out she was letting me kind of make all the decisions. Um, and then the other time, the other person let me make all the decisions, but she was clearly resentful about it. <laughs> so. um, Which neither is very good. No. Neither, so, the thing about it. writing with somebody is that you blend your voice. Um, the whole yes. point of a, tr- of a true collaboration, you would not be able to tell the parts that I wrote and the parts that she wrote. That is, that's actually the thing about Lady Holder and I is that if you read um, Beautiful and Dangerous Things, there are very few places where either one of us stand out. We did not have a problem blending our voice. We had a yeah. problem because she can't stay on plot. <laughs> <laughs> Panther met Plotter. <laughs> but no, I mean, our voices blended beautifully. If she was a Plotter, we could probably write very well together. Dude, we spent four hours on the phone plotting that book. I have notes. Anyways, anyways. <laughs> No, because you're a pantser. I don't want to fuck up your groove. <laughs> you know who the killer is. <laughs> Gone. I yeah. The <laughs> anybody who can like write different characters and have them be you know like, like adapt the the di- like dialogue or voice or the narrative per character should be able to adapt their writing style to work with somebody else. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, I would have no problem mimicking Jilly's voice. And that's not me being arrogant. Um, I'm actually very good at mimicking other writers. Yeah. I can I can do it. I I don't have any reason I would want to, but I can do it. No. Um, no. no but but part but of collaboration think, would be that that blend, and in some ways you have to to mimic the other person's style and blend it into your style so that it looks like one work instead of scenes written by two different people. I mean, if Kira and I were writing together, I would, I would, I would be a little bit more um, brief in in things. She would have to be a little bit wordier in some areas. I mean, we would have to. Yeah. It, it would a lot. It would a lot be in the narration, um, where we would have to kind of merge our style. I'm a little wordier than she is, um, but little. in a lot of areas, we're very similar. So. Um, I I don't think we would have a problem in that regard. It's in the controlling the creative process side of it that we're both two OCD people, two OCD people who have strong, um, who who prefer to be in charge of the creative process and who have very strong opinions about um, things. It's just, it's not really a good recipe to. And I'll be honest. I, As a reader, it is rare that I find a um, a pair of writers who entertain me together. Like, I can enjoy individual works that they've written, but when I've encountered works they've written together, I'll be like, oh, 
there's something off-putting about it. I don't know what it is. It could be just knowing that it's been co-written. I don't know what it is. The exception would be, um, oh, God, it, it fell out of my brain. Um, it's an SGA story. Um, Darkmore was one of the partners. I uh, I recommended it on um, Flash World. Uh, when it first came out, I didn't want to read it because I was a Darkmore reader, but I had not read the other writer, and I was like, "Oh, why'd she collaborate? I don't want to read." That. But then I read it, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Um, now I have to go over and find it. I think C. A. Pearson. It's Darkmore and C. A. Pearson, and it's called Against All Odds. Um, beautiful. There's another one called Total Recall by C. A. Pearson and Darkmore. Fantastic. I highly recommend them as a writer. There are some. Um, there are some duos couple. who just have a really <laughs> good voice together. There, there were a couple of X X Files writers who came out of the gate. Not. I mean, not 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 individual writers. But there are a couple of prom like exiles writing pairs. Um, I'm blanking on their names completely. Uh, who came out of the gate as co-writers? Um, and so that was like where I first learned their works was was as a duo. And then they like would go off and write separate things. And then I learned their voices separately. And I think because my first exposure in in and I can think of like three different cases to these. There were a lot of co-writer pairs in um, in exiles, but in um i think because my first exposure to them was this co-written thing that that set that set, that set the tone for that those writers in my mind um but i did i did discover interestingly that when they wrote separately there was one i liked better than the other um as i fact, in one case i remember one author i liked a lot and i couldn't stand the other one <laughs> so, so um you know that happens sometimes but you know, I think when your first exposure to a writing duo is, is as the duo, um, it's different than when you, you know, know somebody as a as an individual writer, and then they, and if you really, particularly if you really like their style, and then you go and read them doing a story with somebody else, and you're like, wow, but what I really liked about this writer isn't there anymore. That can happen. So. Um, I think I think the best compromise Kara and I ever could come up with, and we and we talked about this, um, is writing like a, a story in a sequel. Like one of us takes, you know, and we each take a point of view, which is what we talked about doing. Which is one of us take Tony's point of view, one of us takes Steve's point of view, and you know, one of us writes the first story in the in the in the arc, and the other person writes a sequel. So. Yeah, I and wanted because, to write Steve's part, and she wanted to write Tony's. Yeah. yeah. And because we each have a different point of view, a different the different POV character, it allows the story to feel like one story. The two, the two arcs feel like one story, even though there's a very different writing style. Because you have a different POV character, so you, you just sort of adapt to the fact that it would be. This is my way I believe it would go. It, it wouldn't be as jarring as if we both tried to write both points of view. So, anyway, that that was kind of the thing we came up with as a way to handle it was if we ever wanted to work on a project together was to do that, not try to write in the actual same work. 
think we hit the questions that I knew about. Did anybody else have any questions? No questions. Oh, well, well, we wait to see if anybody answers the question thing. I would want to mention we have had um, a few people that I know have crossed the finish line. Um, on, I think I know three. I may miss somebody, but I know what Chimera and Sadria and Ellie finished their stories. Uh, so congratulations on finishing your rough trade ahead of schedule. That's amazing. If I missed that somebody finished, sorry, I didn't mean to miss anybody, but um, the only way that I know that somebody finishes their story is if it's the nature of the comments somebody gets or if they actually put the word the end or complete or something in the title of their story. Otherwise, I have no way of knowing. Those are the ones I have noticed that um, have finished. So congratulations, folks, on finishing Rough Trade. It's awesome. You deserve major kudos for what you accomplished. I Ellie the, completed it in her it first nano, right? This was your first nano. Um, and you did what, 75, 76K? Yeah, she, she, 75K, yeah. She, I think she was just shy of 75. And I think Ellie was the 75K level. So she signed up, she, she hit and right, came in right where she um, signed up for. So that's amazing. Congratulations, girl. I've crossed the nano threshold of a 65K ish um i'm still working I'm, I'm, I'm gonna keep going until the fifth and we'll see if i get to the 100k mark low burn most of my chapters yeah well yeah in more ways you know, than one i was like come on now where's thor i want some hot sex <laughs> you know the funny thing yeah. is i hit this i hit this moment and i was like <laughs> is my is my main pairing gonna work because he's not even here yet and I was noodling on that one night, and my my maybe pairing, because my, I went in with a definite pairing and a maybe pairing, and my definite pairing, I'm not sure about, and my maybe pairing is totally working out. Um, but anyway, so while I'm noodling on that one night, I was like, I need to write something else and stop thinking about this. I need to stop thinking about this. So I went over to the Thursday vignettes, and I started looking at them, and I thought, which one of these is going to catch my attention. And I started plotting this green thing based on the, you know, the hands one. And I was like, it wasn't working for me. I was like, I don't want to write something and I'm overthinking this. And then I lost my mind. <laughs> I read Perishable. <laughs> yeah, I lost my mind. <laughs> but that did come from, I was like, Tony well, is hot. Michael Weatherly would totally play him in the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> But that's that's what I do when I have a moment where I'm like, I'm kind of like not sure about what I'm doing here in the story. I'm gonna go work on something else for a minute and distract myself. And I went from, you know, there was a there was a logical sequence of events that went from that picture to what I actually put out. But it is very hard to connect the dots when it's not four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I had um, to go look at the props and was like, where the fuck did the fingers come from? And I go over to the prop and I'm like, oh, are you serious? <laughs> well, I was starting to do something like that's the point of the visual preference you, prompts. You never know what's going to trigger somebody's um, 
creative juices. And so that's why there's two pictures in each one because I don't. And um, I'm going to be really honest right now. If I don't get some fucking Stargate Shepherd, John Shepherd fix out of the posts, out, out of the pictures that I posted in this last one, I'm going to be mad. Because what does plain and Ferris will equal John Shepherd? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I should have put a fighter jet. <laughs> but, you know, I just, I had this idea. I was like, well, what if, because I wasn't going to anything. I really liked that picture, but the idea I had was in jail. I said, well, what if that, that, that alien landscape was a dream? And I thought, well, who would be dreaming that? And I thought, well, what if somebody was, like, having, like, some sort of traumatic dream about those hands, and it was the hands and not the alien landscape? And the next thing you know, severed fingers, and I was just, I can't even explain what happens to my – crack only happens to me at I, 4 o'clock in the morning. It was great, though. I ain't going to lie. I enjoyed it. I laughed. Yeah, it was, it was a, little bit, a little bit of insanity. Um so and then I and then I decided so I, I had my crack moment um, with the severed fingers, and I went, you know, I'm gonna just keep on on task. And if the chemistry doesn't feel right, if it doesn't feel right between Thor and Tony, it just isn't gonna happen. I'm just not gonna do it. I'll just have to let it be pairingless for Tony. But it might feel fine. I don't know. I just need to let myself get there and see, and give myself permission not to write the pairing if it feels clunky. So he will be arriving soon. Um, but but it was slowing me down, the worry about how the pairing wasn't working out. And I was like, I can't force this. So either it's going to work when I get there or it's not. If it doesn't work, I'm just going to give myself permission not to do it. So that helps a lot to just say it's okay if the pairing isn't working for me. We'll see. We'll see when I get there. But that moment that I don't, I don't want to like spoil for anybody hasn't read the recent chapter. The 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 thing that happened at the end of the last chapter was the cliffhanger bit that I replotted that I moved that screwed me up that I moved. So I plotted in the cliffhanger, and the cliffhanger was going to be that the explosion happened, and that was where the cliffhanger occurred. And then you pick up the next chapter with Hulk sitting there. With glowworm. Anyway, um, that was the way that was structured when I plotted it. Okay, so I decided that cliffhanger when I this is just a me thing. Cliffhanger when I'm putting something up all at once. I don't one cliffhanger in the story isn't a problem, but it just kind of bugs me in challenge to put a big cliffhanger like that out where like nobody knows what happened. There's just a big explosion. <laughs> and then I might not be writing for several days. <laughs> so I just don't like when I'm posting work live to throw a big cliffhanger in. So I decided at the last minute to pull the cliffhanger and not put that whole scene in. And it fucked me up. It fucked me up bad because you just don't start a chapter with that scene, with the explosion part. It just it would make the whole rest of the chapter feel like a dud. So I had to restructure several chapters in order to move where that scene happened. It was just, I was like, ugh. So I just made mental note, never plot a cliffhanger into a nano project because I won't <laughs> want to do it at the time and then it'll fuck me up later and yeah. It seemed like it was going to be a small thing to move it, but it wasn't. 
the thing about my nano is that I have a big plot point coming up, and I can either remove it and drop my fic down to just 25k, but I feel like it would be a very unsatisfying short story. At least in the rough draft, I can probably flesh it out a little bit and before I post it, the the final. And it it would, it would be fine, I guess. I, I just... But if I leave the big plot point in, which is a race ship, um, it's going to bloat my word count up to 50, which was the point, right? Because it was a 50K challenge for me. I picked 50K. I should have picked 25 just to give myself a break. I, I, I did the scale to give other people a break and then didn't give myself one after the quantum bank. Right? Yeah, um, yeah, I think so. Because I have been writing pretty much nonstop for the past three years. Yeah. Well, no, I've been writing nonstop basically most of my life, but um, I've been writing in a pressured environment for a very long time. Yeah. So I give you guys advice about not, you know, not, not pressuring yourself, and then I just I pressure the fuck out of myself. That's a do as I say, not as I do thing. <laughs> but anyway, I am thinking about. Um, but then last night I had this really. I had this really, um, you know, the moment when when John hands Jack the baby, and Jack is holding mm-hmm. Kenzie, and I thought to myself, I really want to write a scene where Patrick Shepard holds his grandson. Well, now I really want that too. That just you evil mean author. <laughs> I know it just kind of popped into my brain. Just the idea of of Patrick meeting the baby and um, with his little wings and. I just, it was in my brain, and it was just like, now it's there, and it's, um, which basically turns my, my, um, my story, my little short story, into the beginnings of a series, and if I do that, then cutting it off around 2025k wouldn't be, um, wouldn't be terrible. It would just, like, be the pilot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I do, um, I, uh, yeah, so I think that's what I probably will do is I'll probably end it with um, with um, them taking the Korolov from um, the people who took it out there um, and uh, maybe Miko giving Jack O'Neill a, a way to reach out to them in the future. And that, you know, maybe the next time that they see Jack, he will have bought, brought Patrick Shepard to, to Pegasus. And at that point, um, Patrick would meet not one but two grandchildren. He would meet Nova, which is um, Rodney's uh, baby. I want to meet Nova. I want to meet Nova. Patrick can just wait. <laughs> <laughs> I Someone emailed me and asked me why I named the baby Nova, and I don't know. <laughs> I, it just when I realized that Rodney was going to be having a girl, I thought, "Oh, Nova. Her name's Nova." It was just there was there was no question. Her her name is Nova. 
Yeah. It's like that's that. I got it right. That that's the that's the name. Sometimes it just like when you're when you're putting together your characters and you're thinking about OC characters, um, you know, and because I do get my origins more in original fiction than I ever did fandom, um, a character can sometimes spring kind of wholesale into my head and, and oh, there there they are, you know, and that's their name. <laughs> you know, and, there, and there's no discussion of that, you know. There's, there's you know, so a lot of times I'll be like hitting name generators and looking up shit, you know, what names mean warrior um, and shit like that. In fact, Kenzo's name is special. Let me find my little book and I'll tell you what it's what it means. Because when I, when I was, um, it means strong and healthy. And it's Japanese, and I picked it um, because I wanted Miko to name her son. Um, I thought that was um, important. And also, my first inclination was to name him something um, that was not um, Japanese. And I thought to myself, how how terribly white-centric of you. <laughs> Stop that shit. Because <laughs> so, originally I was going to name him Liam. And I was like, I can't do that. What? No, stop. <laughs> you crazy white girl. <laughs> what are you thinking? <laughs> so... Yeah, I, I love I love Kenzo. I think he's just adorable. Every time he's on screen, I'm just like, oh, Kenzo, he's such a cute baby, and he's just so darling in so many respects. So, um, uh, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. So, so someone actually emailed me and told me he was too mature for his age, and I wrote back and said, you did notice that part where he's not human, right? He's a dragon. You got that right. He's a dragon. What He's not a human baby. He w- and I actually even talk about it in the narrative that they don't know what their um, developmental stages are going to be. They have no idea yeah. how fast he's going to grow, um, how fast is, or even what he understands. Because John didn't want him in the meeting because he didn't know. They have no idea how much Kenzo actually understands of the world going on around him. People can't stop foisting their expectations on yeah. stories. And it's funny because, you know, it's all months. And it was actually you know, my months. inclination to treat him like a human baby. And I even looked up the human um, developmental stages. And I was like, that's just stupid because he's not human. Don't be a dumbass. <laughs> so. Well, it's all months. I mean, there is – sometimes it's, it's difficult because, I mean – I haven't had a ton of reading time, and I've honestly not been in the mood for works in progress this month. That's been a real struggle for me, because I do usually try to follow several of the rough trade works, as many as them I have time for. Um, but sometimes you're just not in the mood for works in progress. So, you know, it's it's great that there's some stories that are coming in finished, because I'm, I'm, when I have time, I can go try to read those. But um, sometimes you just are like, I can't deal with the work. I did progress. i I got to read something that's got an ending. <laughs> Things don't have endings going on. But anyway, so it's a little bit hard when I read. Sometimes when I read comments, I'm like, "What is? Is this them foisting their expectations off on the writer?" And we do try to be careful not to um, approve comments where people are pushing their expectations of the story onto the right, onto the onto the onto the writer. And that is sometimes it's patently obvious that 
It doesn't matter whether I'm following that story or not. It is obvious that this is reader expectation being pushed onto the writer. I can't wait to see. I'm really looking forward to. Yeah. Um, and some of that, that stuff that can be kind of ambiguous, because if I don't know the story, it could be something that the author has been really clear is going to happen. But when... Um, but if it's ambiguous, I delete it because fuck that. I don't have time. Yeah. Um, if it if it's ambiguous, particularly if it's ambiguously negative, um, it's like not. I'm not gonna. But sometimes it's just really obvious. Oh, I hope that so and so is not an asshole in this story. It's like that is so unambiguously foisting your expectation on the re- on the writer. And it's not a case of well, this might be tied into the plot that I haven't read and I don't know. Um, and sometimes I sometimes if I've got time I sit and edit those comments to take out the the expectation. But yeah, I see a lot of comments that a lot of the, a lot of the ones that, that I've just done nope have been around. Oh, I hope this character isn't this much of a dick this time or whatever. It's like really don't voice your expectation onto. And that's what happens when you know people write you about the way because you get written about characterization a lot about the way you characterize this person or that person or whatever. It's like, quit placing your expectations off on me. Just because that's not the way you would have written it doesn't mean it has anything whatsoever to do with me. Nothing. If you don't like, if this isn't the way you would have written it, well, go write your own fucking story. That's the way that works. That's what I did. I didn't like the, what some of the things I was reading. I went and wrote my own. <laughs> <laughs> to be a dick. And Miko does what she wants. She doesn't have to... Nobody allows her to do shit. <laughs> Let's just be clear. <laughs> Kavanaugh died. I, I didn't um, put it uh, on the screen, I don't think. I don't remember. But he's dead. He said. Um, he's dead, Jim. He said. Uh... Oh, Ellie, is that who Miko killed? Because I saw in comments about Miko killing somebody, and I was like, who did Miko kill? And I haven't read the story, so I was like, hmm, who would that be? And, well, now I know. Oh, hmm. and yours. Well, now I have to go read it. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't read anything yet. <laughs> I've been so, you know, between food poisoning and just general pissiness, I haven't got to read anything yet. But I'm on a board Miko killing somebody. Because um, she's Space Carson Beckett. <laughs> it hasn't come up. I don't know if it come up yet or not, but in my head, um, when they decided that he was done, and they were talking about execution and how to handle that and how to handle the body, um, she just sent him through a space gate. Because they were done. <laughs> That's like execution and body disposal. It's a twofer. Yeah. Yeah, they're like, We don't have we don't have place to keep bodies around here. Off he goes. Throw him through his space gate. But there would have had to have been a discussion about whether or not they could actually survive the vacuum of space before they did it. <laughs> Yeah. Make sure he didn't he didn't live. <laughs> okay, John, send through a jumper and make sure he's dead. Kind of push the body into the atmosphere or something. I don't care. 
they could send a jumper through first that stands back at a distance and watches Carson come flying through and die. Like, yeah, he's dead. <laughs> and that's the only way to be sure, right? You have to watch it happen. Right. And right. John might be just pissed off enough to want to see it. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he would have been the dead. jumper or be the one who threw him through the gate. <laughs> It's it's a that'd it's a, a toss that'd up. Be a, that'd be that'd be a tough choice. That'd be a tough choice, and I think I, Nico would get to make the decision. She'd be like, "This is my choice." I'd be like, get these "Okay, if I'm going to be doing the tossing, I'm going to need video footage from the other side." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if I'm on the other side, I need video of the tossing. <laughs> I can't afford to miss this, so please be sure that. <laughs> We've preserved it for posterity because I plan to watch I it every week with popcorn. I need the details. Um, but yeah, no, Rodney was um was unconscious um and very ill when when Carson Beckett was put on trial. Um, but uh. It's my headcanon that that process had to happen really fast to prevent them from turning into a mob. It became an issue of civility, that, that, that they would have had to handle that situation as quickly as possible to avoid um, him being um, murdered. And you could say the execution's a murder if you want to, but they had a process, they created a process, they reviewed the evidence and they punished him. But um, if it had been allowed to fester, it could have turned into a situation where um, things would have gotten really violent because of what he was guilty of. He was a very, very bad man. He's not a particularly ethical man in canon, so it's really easy to, to turn it. Yeah, I Perhaps. mean, he's not ethical in canon. It, it's almost disturbing how unethical he is at times. So, so, but he is one of those characters that he can easily be, you know, given, just turns a few degrees one direction or another, and he is both, you know, good benevolent doctor to almost, you know, Mengele-type qualities, so... Because honestly, the, the the Michael stuff is still is like to me like one of some of the most horrifying things. I was like, what? Well, that was such a. Not only did they do it once, they did it twice. I was like, really? Yeah. And someone needed to tell them no. I mean, really, these are some people that need to be said no to. It's like people haven't said no to you enough in your life. I'm just saying. All the no. Do you remember how I mentioned at one point that I was, I thought I was getting kind of burned out on Sentinel stories? Yeah, we have two, we have two minutes and 30 seconds. Yes, and I do remember that. I lied. I lied. <laughs> In the course of this nano, I have plotted two new Sentinel stories. <laughs> I would actually like to write a Sentinel story um, a survival story. 
like um, a Sentinel coming online in a um, setting and, and um, just like uh, being off world, whether it's John or um, it'd be really interesting if it was Steve McGarrett. Uh, yes, yes, it would. Steve gets a mission and he has, and he gets, um, he gets drawn into the SGC to do an apprehension or something and um, on an, uh, on a planet and they, and they need somebody who can, who can hunt and maybe he's the one they call in or Ian Edgerton would be good too. <laughs> and just have them come online during that process and, um, and bond with whoever is available. I'm and then the ramifications not sad at all. I'd be happy to enable you on this. <laughs> I'll be your enabler, Kara. Like, <laughs> if um, maybe that there was somebody at the SGC that the the, the NCIS um, needed to um, to bring in, and he managed to get through the gate, and um, it's Tony's case, and he asked for somebody. Um, to help him on the ground on a different planet, and um, maybe the the Secretary of the Navy brings in Steve McGarrett. I fully support this. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'm not tired of Sentinel stories either. <laughs> it's the little black dress for a reason. I want to hear about your plots after we get off the phone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. We're down at 25 seconds. You guys have a fantastic week. I'm going to go make some breakfast burritos for my husband, and then I might write the end of my story since I decided it's probably the first episode of the pilot. Um, and um, say goodnight, Jilly. Good night, everyone. <laughs>